This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. They know you're here for good content, so they're not going to waste your time with a long pitch. Here are the three things you need to remember and know about Iron Source. Number one, they're developing the most robust data-driven growth engine for mobile games. Number two, their secret sauce is closing the monetization marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth. And number three, they have an awesome Medium blog and podcast called Level Up. You can find it on Medium by searching for Iron Source Level Up. Thanks. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. But what is attribution platform? Why do we need it? And why is AppsFlyer the best in the business? Brian Murphy, head of games at AppsFlyer. Can you answer these questions? Sure. Uh, right now, marketing budgets are being impacted. Uh, so the need for strong attribution and measurement partners is critical. Marketers should be focusing on what's working best. So mobile measurement and attribution partners who help provide uh, those insights are even more important. Mobile attribution platforms determine which campaigns, partners, and channels delivered each app install, and marketers rely on these insights to measure and optimize their marketing performance for both user acquisition and retargeting campaign. With one trillion in-app events measured each month, AppsFlyer is the most robust technology platform and mobile measurement partner for any game developer to distribute and engage their application to a worldwide consumer base. Our scale and data insights provide customers with unique ability to make informed marketing decisions. In short, AppsFlyer gives you the data and tools to market your games effectively. So there you have it, folks. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself one of the best attribution platforms out there. Hey everybody, welcome to Twig 90. Yes, we are at 90, 10 more to 100. So we are rolling. Today we've got myself, Joe Kim, Adam Telfer, Eric Kress, and we also have a special guest host, Craig Chapel from Center Tower. Actually, before we jump into the news updates, Craig, do you want to just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you're doing at Center Tower? Yeah, sure. So I used to be uh, a games journalist, so sort of for B two B. So I worked on Develop Magazine, then I was editor of Pocket Gamer.biz for a few years. Had a brief time at Nintendo, uh, and now I'm the mobile insights strategist for uh, mobile intelligence firm Sensor Tower. So my job is to kind of look at the data that we've got and write some analysis uh, on the on the hottest games around. <laughs> right. And Adam, you're all set up in Canada now, right? You're yeah, yeah. I actually I got a haircut, so I can actually turn on my video now. So that's nice. I saw that. I saw that. Look at you. Yeah. Wow. I'm still waiting to get a haircut. They did not. They didn't. They uh, in San Francisco, in which there are absolutely no cases, they basically postponed the opening of of hair salons. Like, what the fuck? Come on, man. I need to get a haircut. My son's hair is like it's a quaff. Right, it's like yeah. flowing. It's like it's, it's too much, man. We gotta uh, get the- YouTube is your friend. I I was very surprised at how easy it is to cut hair. <laughs> I always thought. Oh no no no! Yeah, well, we we've had some mishaps in that area. My wife got really drunk and was at a, a dinner party with some friends, and she started cutting everyone's hair, and it was <laughs> it was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> the fact that they allowed her to do it in the first place was bad enough, you know, right? But I mean. The base of the back of the hair, they cut like the line was like almost halfway through, you know, halfway up. It was a nightmare. So, yes, I know cutting hair is not hard. We have the clippers, but it requires a little bit of skill, of course, which we don't have. So, anyway, I want to get back to normal and get a haircut. Okay. God damn it. All right, moving on. All right, updates. So, I've got a few. First, Roblox conducted a survey of 3,000 teens from the Roblox community and just want to highlight a few interesting statistics. First, 52% said they are able to spend the same or more time with their real life friends via Roblox, voice chat apps, and other gaming platforms. 62% of teams surveyed online conversations with in real life friends were one of the top three activities on the platform. And 44% report getting more screen time because their parents aren't as strict about it. This is something that Eric talked about and that I've seen based upon all the kind of free time that people have with shelter in place. Also have an announcement on behalf of Javian from Miniclip. Basically, she is putting together a webinar series featuring exceptional women in the games industry 
and they are having an event this week, Thursday, July 9th at 6 p.m. BST. I'll have a link in the show notes, but if you're interested, they've got a lot of great speakers, Isabel Ferreira, Stella Wang, and Catalina Liu, and they are going to be talking about crossing the COVID-19 bridge, impact, outlook, and the silver lining. Next update is that gamesindustry.biz is reporting that Tencent is starting a new console game developer. It will be a subsidiary of its Lightspeed and Quantum Studio and will be based in LA. So Lightspeed LA will be led by Rockstar veteran Steve Martin, who held leadership roles on Grand Theft Auto V and Red Dead Redemption 2. And final update for me is that internet service provider Cox Communications is launching a new premium internet service for $7 a month called Elite Gamer in a service that improves internet latency by as much as 32%. So this technology has actually existed for a long time, even when I was at Cisco back in the day, but I think they're now just trying to market and make more money from it. But uh, for anyone interested in gaming, you have that service through Cox. Adam? Okay, so one of the bigger news stories this week came from the UK government, which was urged to immediately classify loot boxes as gambling. Um, So the House of Lords Gambling Committee recommended that games with loot boxes be classified as gambling. And the way that they're going to do it is they have some sort of weird harm indicator scale, which adds up how addictive they feel the game is and how appealing it is to children and use that to basically justify removing it from the game or be classified as gambling. Um, So this is really the worst end of the spectrum in terms of people that don't really understand the game's business trying to crack down. Most of the concern is because of kids and young teens, and I really got that from most of the messaging. And I think this is really the red herring that I think the industry needs to focus on self-regulating. Same thing that we've done with uh, COPPA. Um, it mentions games like Social Casino, um, but then goes into things like FIFA, GTA Online for having casinos or like casino mechanics within it. So GTA Online for having that casino in the game. Um, and even though it's ESRB 18 plus, many get, kids play the game anyways. So that's why the, the committee uh, felt so strongly. But for the actual paper, though, I couldn't really find a lot that made me feel like this was actually going to be moving forward quickly or made me feel like they did more than just read the headlines. So. Um, Even though it's all been sensationalized by the gaming media, this was just one of seven recommendations made by the committee, which I'm not really sure how much sway this committee really has. I don't really understand UK politics, so I don't really understand like what this committee is actually doing. And from the actual text, it doesn't really sound like they've concluded anything. Um, Three quotes. We have no research into the impacts of loot boxes and video games on children or young people's understanding of gambling. Anecdotally, there is a large number of Xbox Live and PlayStation Plus gamers that play with each other and while playing FIFA, Forza, and so on, bet for virtual goods, okay? (laughs) Uh, And we have no prevalence of data, no age breakdowns for this type of gambling, but we do know that hundreds of thousands of teenage boys in particular play these video games. So I just, like generally, this doesn't feel like they have any understanding of where loot boxes are in games. And I think generally HD games are moving past this. Mobile games still have them, but I think HD games are moving past loot boxes. So I'm not really sure where this is going to be going. Um, Tencent had their annual conference for 2020, announced more than 40 games with a number of key mobile ports. Uh, Dungeon Fighter Online for mobile um, was a big one. Most likely will be, the, or like is the top grossing game right now for PC console and will likely do very well on mobile. Um, another, a bunch of different strong IPs are getting taken over by Tencent. So Metal Slug is now working with Timmy to be going after the Contra return segment. Uh, Street Fighter Battle, which looks like uh, Capcom's major IP is going to be uh, getting the Contest of Champions treatment. Uh, FIFA World, uh, which thanks to the Chinese government is the only MOBA or mobile FIFA game allowed in China, uh, will be published by Tencent. And I think like in general, um, I would definitely recommend reading the Gigi Digest for this week. Um, Joe, you, you said that Kenny wrote this one, yep. uh, which goes into the competing studios internally and how it's now become an internal battle of escalating IP. So l- looking at things like Call of Duty and of course, Pokemon Unite and now things like Street Fighter Battle. 
Um, but overall, it looks like Tencent is poised to continue to dominate on both mobile and HD platforms. And I think they've created a pretty strong pipeline and uh, have already picked up a lot of the best future-facing talent in the West. So it is, you know, it's crazy. God, the last, you know, the last uh, place for them to go was HD gaming. You know, I mean, they have a free-to-play games, obviously, but if they're building a studio to compete directly against freaking Rockstar and GTA, I mean, that's nuts. Like, I mean, there's no stone that has been un- not un- unturned at this at this stage. Like, they're poised to just dominate. Um, anyway, I think... I, I think they're just betting, betting very largely on free-to-play transition in HD. And well, I, ironically, well, not ironically, last, like, five years ago, when we were talking about Tencent and, and my investor clients were talking to Tencent, they were saying, like, look, the growth in, the, in China is limited. We need to have a strategy in the West in order for us to continue you know, uh, to, to grow at, at this pace. And so, I mean, more power to them. They seem to be executing quite well <laughs> against that strategy, you know, and, you know, and I don't know where the end in sight is for these guys. Uh, as a shareholder, I'm very happy, but I'm also a little bit worried about the traditional publishers, you know, competing with such a big behemoth that has almost unlimited funds. Yep. And has the advantage of the Chinese government, right? That they can basically build up scale in China without really having any competition. Right. And and, then, and again, I've made this point many times that the America, U.S. and European companies just can't compete in China, period, because they're just not allowed um, in general, with with some big exceptions like Blizzard. But um, anyway, yeah, it's really interesting uh, dynamics that are going on with Tencent's move. So, Positive news. Horizon Zero Dawn is coming to PC on August 7th, so on Steam and Epic Games. So if you've actually never played this, I highly recommend playing it. It's amazing. Uh, you know what? Honestly, I don't know if you, you've played the game. I, this on PC would actually be really good because the controls were a little bit hard to get used to, but I think PC would have more precision. Would you agree? Like, yeah, it might be a better experience on the PC. Yeah, of course, because it was... I don't know, like it, it was a very, very slowly paced um, tactical kind of almost shooter, right? Like almost a, a, the way that I equate it is like it's Dark Souls, but if it was traps and bow and arrow is like the, yeah. the mechanic. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Like taking down some of those beasts, like it, it felt better than, than Monster Hunter World yeah. in many ways. It's going to be absolutely beautiful on, on PC too, I'm sure. Okay, now I'm going to buy it for PC again. I have to buy it. I have to buy it. I'm the- <laughs> I didn't get through the whole thing. I think I only got through half. So I think it's a good opportunity. Yeah, great game. Um, Ubisoft um, fake leaked and then real revealed their upcoming free-to-play Battle Royale game. Um, It looks like it's going after Apex, PUBG, Fortnite with a spin on the genre. The Twitch, the, the twist, it looks like there's a respawn mechanic and it looks like it's got more focus on looting. Um, thematically, it's kind of this like, Paris in the future with parkour, which is pretty expected from Ubisoft at this point. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's my read on it. Uh, overall, this just feels like too slow of a fast follow. Um, a lot like the auto chess game that they announced, um, but even much more delayed. They're, they're going after services that are already at scale at this point and years too late. And I feel like the Battle Royale craze has really died down. And I think Warzone was kind of the last big one just because it had the advantage of the Call of Duty IP. And I think will be the last kind of pure Battle Royale game. And I think it's more likely that new genres split off and make more fundamental changes to make you know this actually happen. But I think good luck to the devs. And of course, I'll be playing and seeing where the launch goes. I, I think, well, this game feels a lot, way too similar to um, uh, Apex. I mean, sci-fi, at least theme-wise anyway. I'm sure the gameplay is different. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't think this is going to do all that well. I don't know if there's enough room any more room for this having said that like all it takes is you know three or four million people that play it religiously to build a decent business but you know all the indicators we've seen so far like twitch numbers etc there just was not any interest in watching this video Um, well i mean and and valorant's not doing very well and like you know obviously the crucible was a disaster for amazon we're going to get to um it's like i'm not saying it's a zero-sum game but there is a finite audience of people that are willing to spend hours and hours and tons of money playing, you know, online shooters, right? I mean, it's a big audience, but you only can like, you know, you can only fast segment the audience so much, a certain yeah. amount, right? Before there's no opportunities left, you know, to yeah. some degree. Anyway. All right, quick update, legal update. 
So David Hoppe got back to me on these legal issues you were talking about, which I felt like we were kind of talking out of our buttholes. But um, so anyway, it, it was relating to the Apple and Spotify case, as well as a 30% fee for Apple, Google, Microsoft, Sony, et cetera, right? So he, in order to clarify, he basically said there are two separate actions, one against Apple, which is basically saying there's anti-competitive monopolistic actions by Apple that directly benefit them um, and their music service. And that's the one against Spotify, right? Or Spotify against Apple, right? The second one is the mono, monolith, sorry, monopolistic power related to 30% commission. And the claim is basically that 30% is unfair use of monopoly power since it's passed on to, develop, to consumers by developers. So basically this claim is very similar to a monopoly uh, that a retailer would have. And they would use their market power to mark up prices by 30%. So antitrust law is super complicated. Um, and obviously, this is going to be oversimplifying the issue a lot. But David also agrees that Spotify has a much stronger case um, than the, uh, the the 30% commission. But again, it'll take a ton of time in courts to sort it out. So I just wanted to give you an update. I don't think we were so far off. But I just think the complexity around this is probably something that is we have to appreciate. <laughs> so anyway, um, all right, the next one, NBA 2K21 has basically announced that the PS5 and Series X versions of the game will cost $70 at launch. Basically, the implication is that there may be a $10 price hike against uh, next-gen console uh, prices. Um, so I'm actually kind of looking into this now. I mean, it's super ballsy, right, for NBA 2K to do this. Um, and particularly given how much hate there is already from their kind of microtransaction strategies. And, I, you know, for me, I'm not sure if you could have it both ways, like char charge a premium and then also build up a microtransaction system that a lot of people just don't like. So, but again, NBA has a, NBA 2K already has a 1.5 user rating. So I guess if you're that low, 0.5 rating is just as bad as a 1.5 rating. <laughs> so I guess they don't care as much. And, I, and that's the thing. I think they probably know that their customers are kind of captured, right? They realize there's no other NBA game this year. Um, and they will buy the game no matter what. Like there's inelasticity of demand to some degree when you're the only game in town. And I, I do think this likely will work in the short term. But uh, EA is coming back next year. And they could gain some traction if they come at a lower price. It's possible. But, um, but a challenge in and of itself. So, again, I guess for me, this is like the last game I would imagine to come at the $70 price point, right? So something like Last of Us 2, GTA, Elder Scrolls, God of War makes more sense, right? These epic single-player experiences. But I'm not really surprised that Take-Two is trying this. Um, and, you know, their exec team, including Strauss, the CEO, they, they're not gamers. They're more like business, super business, hardcore investor people like me, I guess, I suppose. But um and they're super aggressive in how they operate. And I'm, you know, again, not surprised, but this is kind of going against the convention of the entire industry. And I do not see anybody planning on doing the $70 price point this cycle. But given the fact that they've kind of opened the gates, it's possible that people follow along. So we'll see. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, trying to read into this a little bit deeper. Um, one thing is that this could just be their strategy for driving to the $100 premium SKU. Uh, because the $100 SKU is actually smart delivery capable. Um, so this is them saying like, hey, if you're going to buy next gen, like don't buy a $60 game and then buy 70 bucks again, buy the $100 version and then it'll convert over. Uh, so you'll get both the PS4 version and PS5. Um, and I think that the weird part about all this, when everybody's calling for this being like the, um, the, the linchpin to go towards a $70 price point um, for next gen is that, uh, Microsoft and Sony are pushing their smart delivery components and it's basically becoming the norm for a lot of the 2020 releases at least. Um, and backlash is pretty rampant for M Madden uh, previously and now NBA for avoiding that smart delivery system. Madden got a ton of backlash a couple of weeks ago on this. Um, but the smart delivery basically guarantees wait, 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 somebody. But, wait, 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 hold on before you go. But Madden is still offering a free upgrade. It's just a limit. Yeah. It's a time limited versus their smart. They, they actually system. backed away from that. I'm not sure what the the last system was, but they they backed away from that time limited system. I think they at least extended it. Um, they were only going to allow time limited upgrades up until like I don't know, the end of this year or something. I yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 
but again, they're doing it their own way is what I'm saying. They yeah, still are yeah. doing they're a smart using system, the, the Microsoft right. uh, system. They're going to use origin so then they can capture people's emails too. Um, but anyways, like I think the, using the smart delivery system then means that you have to set the same price on both generations and you have to have the same SKU strategy on both. Um, so then all of a sudden somebody can, like if you set a next gen game to be $70, either both gens have to be $70 or somebody can pick up the current gen for 60 and get the free upgrade to, to 70. It also messes up any mm -hmm. SKU plans or pricing. So I think like this could be the turning point for some bold players that have a new game. Um, and can jump up to 70 bucks, but most companies that are afraid of things like backlash aren't going to do this. And that's why this generally is only going to benefit like 2K and EA and maybe Activision. Um, so like overall, I think it could be a good move to move to $70 uniformly, but I think this smart delivery system almost like pushes that uh, away as an option. And I think generally like premium single-player games, still that model is fundamentally broken. Like a, a $10 increase in MSRP still doesn't account for the huge dramatic declines of ASPs um, because it's a single-player game. Like these games just have to go on discount so quickly that you're, you you lose a lot of that advantage pretty quickly. So so again, the, the big thing, the one thing that I was worried about, you know, when we first started talking about these smart delivery systems is like, how are you going to control pricing for both current gen and prior gen, right? So if you want to discount the prior gen and clear the channel, you can't do it because you're basically going to be discounting the next gen SKU, which there could be more demand for, particularly the first two years of a cycle for something like this. I mean, I think this is probably analysis that they went through is like, like they can keep charging a premium price for the next gen SKU for longer than they can on the, on the old gen SKU. And so they need more flexibility. So that's why I was a little, I, I mean, I should know this, but I don't. But I think I would imagine the smart delivery system was not really very popular with the publishers because they just lose the flexibility of being able to manage the channel, right? And pricing yeah. in, in general. Um, and then again, I want to be clear on this because I this is actually my job. Is like I don't think this means that we're gonna see a $70 price point across the board, right? EA is basically already committed to the $60 price point, Microsoft, Sony, CD Project, right, with their big game. Ubisoft is a follower, so they're likely going to do the $60 thing. Activision, maybe, but like, what you think, you, you think <laughs> Call of Duty base SKU is going to be $70? I don't think so. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. So I, I think these headlines are a little bit um, hyperbolic, and, and, and it's likely that we will see the $60 price point continue, my opinion. All right. All right. Jumping into news, a lot of updates, guys, but. Our first article that we're going to cover is actually written by Craig, and it is PUBG Mobile doubles lifetime revenue to $3 billion in just seven months. But Craig, it'd be great for you to walk through this, this article with us. Yeah, for sure. It's doing some astonishing numbers, really. So that $3 billion number only includes uh, apps on Google Play. Uh, that's actually doubled from $1.5 billion in lifetime revenue that it uh, generated seven months ago. And so far in 20, 2020, it's actually made 1.5 billion, uh, sorry, $1.3 billion. And then if you look at March alone, so that's like the global height of the pandemic and lockdowns, it generated $270 million in a single month. Uh, and then when we're talking about PUBG Mobile, we're also including the player spending, as I mentioned, really for Game for Peace in China. That was released by Tencent in May 2019 and marked the, the start of the title actually being able to monetize in China. Uh, it was initially released as two games in China, Exhilarating Battlefields and Army Attack, which were both released in February 2018. And they accumulated millions and millions of players, but they never got the green light to monetize. Uh, the timing of their release was kind of unfortunate or very unfortunate uh, as that's when the Chinese government was really cracking down on the mobile games market and there was a licensing freeze in place really until the end of the year uh, so they could never monetize that game so uh, in the end they just gave up and then eventually they released it I think in, in uh, May 2019 uh, and since then revenue has just kind of gone up and up and up and up so you can kind of see that firstly since the if I go back to the Royale part, especially since that was introduced in June 2018 internationally. So this isn't the Chinese version, this is internationally. Uh, there's actually been a, a sequential increase in player spending since then. 
so prior to the China release, it generated approximately $150 million in Q1 2019. But in Q2 2019, when with the launch of Game for Peace in China, it accumulated $376 million. Uh, and it's continued to build on that. In Q1 2020 alone, it generated $675 million worldwide. So I think it's a really impressive feat by Tencent uh, to take a popular PC title and make it work on mobile. And I think this all, this all kind of came around a time where, you know, where prior to the likes of Fortnite and Knives Out, shooters hadn't really been that successful to, to this degree on, on mobile. And then the battle pass monetization, obviously taken from Fortnite, right down to the season themes. Uh, currently, I think they've got a toy playground season. Uh, that's helped spur on revenue. And now PUBG Mobile has just surpassed any other battle royale game really, uh, on mobile. So personally, I'm a huge fan of the PC game and I've played it religiously <laughs> for years. But what I would say is that uh, when I when I see the mobile version, they, they kind of double down on a lot of the fun aspects of it. Uh, so they have like events like the Godzilla events or Resident Evil 2 where they added like an extra mode. And it really just makes it a better fit for the wider audience of the mobile version. So Craig, maybe I could ask you a few questions about this because I think it's really fascinating just what's happening, especially on the shooter side with such increased monetization. But just looking at PUBG first, what do you think is, or how would you attribute the increase in the PUBG revenue? Is it because of coronavirus shelter in place? Or is it because of, as, as you were alluding to, the, the battle pass? Or what, what are the primary drivers for this? If the biggest contributors to global growth were the implementation of the battle pass. And then finally, the launch for Game for Peace in China, uh, which meant, as I said earlier, that it could finally actually monetize in the country after all that time where it could. Uh, but that said, PUBG Mobile has seen a sharp increase in revenue in 2020 from January to May. And that was really right at the start of the pandemic in January in China. As I noted before, it really hit its peak in March with $270 million in revenue, which is also the peak. Uh, revenue has declined since, however, falling to $215 million by May and $168 million in June, which was actually its lowest since December. And I think a lot of that comes from, so what I know that in China, the pandemic and the lockdowns began in January, and then I guess it kind of peaked by March, and in the rest of the world, for the UK at least, it was March until basically now. And so that's where you can see the revenue go up and now decline. Interesting. Yeah, because after you published this article, I actually dug into the numbers a little bit and wanted to actually ask you because... When we compare like the top three shooters, uh, so PUBG Mobile, on mobile, PUBG Mobile, mm -hmm. Fortnite, and Call of Duty Mobile, and just looking at the App Store numbers, what we see is that actually, despite this tremendous increase in revenue of PUBG this year, they've actually been losing share to Call of Duty Mobile and Fortnite since March. So could you talk about any theories in terms of the games? Is it because of, as you're alluding to, the shelter in place has been waning in China, but Fortnite has a stronger audience in the US. Or what, what are your thoughts on, on this kind of phenomenon happening? I think at the moment, you, you can put it a lot, a lot of it down to the pandemic and the lockdowns. And so when I was taking a look, so from Q4 2019 to Q1 2020, Call of Duty mobile revenue dropped. Uh, and it was the same for Fortnite. But in PUBG's case, uh, it actually rose during that time. And then in the following quarters, so Q1 2020 to Q2, it's going up for Call of Duty and Fortnite, and it's gone down for PUBG Mobile. And I think you can really put that down to when the lockdowns occurred and the, mar the markets that they're most popular in. So clearly for PUBG Mobile, it is uh, China where it's most popular. Yeah. And then Call of Duty and Fortnite, most popular in the US. And so you can really see when the shelter in place orders kind of came around. There are other factors. But, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things is that PUBG was a mobile was falling pretty precipitously for the last few weeks, but then it's starting to spike up again. I'm assuming that there's some kind of like live ops, like season pass thing or something going on right now that will bring their revenue back. But uh, but but yeah, overall, just, I, you know, overall, PUBG didn't look very different on mobile for the U.S. anyway for the, during the pandemic, unlike Call of Duty and, and, and Fortnite, which saw a huge 
spikes during the pandemic shutdown. So, yeah, and just to give our audience a little bit of context in terms of the specific numbers around market share, what we saw is that if we're just looking at App Store from March to June, Fortnite went from 8.6% market share relative to those three games to 25%. And then Call of Duty Mobile went from 5.4% to 10.9%, all according to sensor tower numbers. But I think, Craig, the explanation that you're providing would definitely make a lot of sense, that we're actually seeing a huge share increase, especially driven by the U.S. market for Fortnite. And so the differences in terms of the timing with, res with respect to shelter-in-place would potentially be a, a good explanation for that phenomenon. Uh, maybe one other question I could ask you, though, is that to what degree do you think that the revenue numbers that we have are actually understated a little bit just because there are certainly some countries, Southeast Asia, Latin, without credit card payments. And so a lot of the payments in some of these games are being tracked or are not tracked because they're, you know, using alternative payment systems, for example. Well, with PUBG Mobile, for example, yeah, we only track App Store and Google Play revenues. Right. So we're, we're kind of discounting this 3 billion figure is really discounting all of the Android stores in China. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that, that could be a, a potentially a, a tremendous amount of revenue. We're only in China, we're only counting App Store. Right. So, yeah, it's 3 billion, but I guess that's uh, perhaps a, a conservative estimate. Great. Okay, folks, after the break, Eric Kress goes on a mega rant when we discuss Apple cancels some arcade games and strategies shift to keep subs subscribers by Bloomberg, and Amazon and Google are in games for the wrong reasons by gamesindustry.biz. That's coming up after the break. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and skew planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of Beta Hat. Beta Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. And we are back from the break. Let's talk Apple Arcade right now. All right, moving on. Yep. All right. I was dancing all week on this, this one, right? So Apple, there's an article basically saying Apple cancels some arcade games in a strategy shift to keep subscribers. So everyone hear that? Nope. The music has stopped. The money has stopped flowing. And as we predicted, the funding is starting to dry up for Apple Arcade. And again, I've been doing victory laps all week on this. Um, so the article reads, Apple has shifted the strategy of its Apple Arcade gaming service canceling contracts for some games in development while seeking other titles that it believes will better retain subscribers. Hey, Apple, you know what kind of games retain customers? Free-to-play games. They are actually designed to retain customers, unlike the single-player nonsense that are designed for basically a quick experience. Does anyone at Apple actually understand mobile gaming at all? Like, this is unbelievable. The article continues. On the calls with developers in April, the Apple Arcade representative cited a specific example of the type of game that the company wants. Grindstone, an engaging puzzle action game by Capybara Games that has many levels. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Grindstone is designed exactly like a traditional free-to-play puzzle game. It actually looks like an amazing game, but the issue is that they have to continue to develop more levels, more live services, which costs money. Why rely upon some ridiculous subscription scheme and build a, And why not just build out an innovative free-to-play puzzle game and make some serious dollars? It doesn't make any sense for them to be on the service, period, right? So the real sad thing here, and, and for a moment, is that a lot of these contracts that were in development were canceled to, by developers. These developers are completely left in the wind, right? And that sucks. 
And it's a shitty thing for Apple to do, frankly. They gave these developers hopes that they could build a small team and build you know, their creative vision and, and the single player tchotchke games. And it sucks. And I feel bad for them. But if anyone had listened to the podcast when this thing was announced, they would understand this is a huge risk, right? The free, to, free money was not going to last, right? You know, maybe it can sur- survive as some niche subscription, but even then it's going to be tough because these new games require retention, right? And, and if you're making something innovative and interesting, like retention is not really in, in mind, you know? And if, if you're going to build a game that retains, why not make it free to play, right? Anyway, it doesn't make sense. So the only thing we're able to hope here I see is that they, they could do is build like a first party org, hire small groups of second and third party developers and make bigger and better unique experiences. Basically start over, right? Leverage some of the groundwork they've done, you know, but just create like bigger, better experience that makes the platform unique, right? Or the service unique. I'm not saying that this will work. I see huge issues here, right? I think there's just too much content out there that will compete against it. But it just never made sense to have a bunch of small tchotchke games. So what I think they should do is basically throw in the towel, you know, and just keep making iPhones. And as a separate rant, and I know I've done this many times before, maybe three or four times before, but I just want to be clear on this, right? Stop dedicating resources to nonsense and fix your freaking store, okay? The Apple store is still like the absolute joke of the industry, right? They need to fix discovery. They need to get rid of this editorial nonsense. They have to have a better algorithm that recommends games. And they have to have a splash screen that shows more than two games at any given time. I mean, the splash screen is a freaking joke, right? You bring up the splash screen, you see like huge news stories, you click through and then you have to like, scroll down in order to find the first app, right? Doesn't want anyone at Apple understand that the that store is supposed to reduce consumer friction, right? You look at something like Netflix, you boot this thing up and you're a business, right? You have five or six ideas from the get-go. There's no editorial. You move down with one swipe and you have 20 pieces of content at your fingertips that are recommended based on prior viewing, trending shows, other recommendations based on what your wife has been watching. I mean, is this so hard? It's not reinventing the wheel. Just stop wasting all this resource on game subscriptions that would never, that would never have worked and works on fixing your store. And that's my public service announcement to Apple. What do you think? Wow. Good guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do I follow that up though? <laughs> For me, the, the, it just seems kind of stuck 10 years in the past when premium games on mobile were a thing. Um, I think what they're trying to do is, you could argue it's noble. They're trying to bring back a certain type of experience that isn't really available on the platform. And some people really like that. But but for me, you know, the market moved on to -to free-to-play a long time ago. And that wasn't just because publishers got greedy, though, you know, maybe. Um, But that's really because that's what consumers want. You know, the consumers moved over to free to play. If consumers didn't want it, we'd still be playing premium games. So I, I think packaging all this into a subscription service is still got the friction there. And there's still a whole store where you can get more games that are free. So I I think in its present form, it doesn't work. And I think in the form they want to take it, it's probably not going to work. And they'll need a lot more money to make the kind of games they want to make and they won't be able to have as many. So then why have it on a subscription service? That's my take. Got it. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you though, Craig, in the sense that I think the positive spin on this is that the intentions are noble in in the sense that I think it does make sense to try and preserve some forms of games like the smaller, more artistic, more story based games there should be a place where these kinds of games get an audience. It can be surfaced to players. On PC, we have Steam, but there is no Steam for the mobile gaming market. And so Arcade, to some degree, fills that void. But Eric, to your point, I do think that the store being more like Netflix, I think that's an eventuality. So whether it happens next year or five years or 10 years from now, it'll eventually happen. But you know, obviously, we're not there yet. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know it's deeply political you know, with the powers that be at Apple to make this more friendly to the consumer. But at some point they just have to realize that it's just not a store. It's like, it's, it's a joke, right? It's, it's so, I was embarrassment, I think to some degree. And I want to actually make a quick quote to Craig. So now I'm all hostile. So I got to get hostile on Craig. You know, one of the worst 
worst ret- uh, worst sites out there in terms of pushing the narrative of of single player experiences. It was Pocket Gamer. Pocket Gamer was the last holdout to go to mobile free to play in 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 the press. Like they were the biggest site that was covering mobile games, and it took them years to figure out. And I think to this day, maybe not Biz, but definitely PocketGamer.com. Those guys still all they do is talk about premium games that have that aren't even part of the market really they aren't even part of the discussion you know so i think i think they were also at fault to keep this narrative going that 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 these single player small tchotchke experiences are a viable market they're not right make it stop adam you're the voice of reason talk to me what i'm not getting dragged into this man (laughs) (laughs) i'm not getting dragged into this or craig do you want to respond about pocket gamer yeah I'll, i'll defend myself a bit you know i I would say at least on PocketGamer.biz, where I was, we, you know, we appreciated the free-to-play model because ultimately that's where people move to and that's what people like. You know, if I speak to, just anecdotally, if I speak to my friends, you know, they're playing free games, probably trying not to pay, but people kind of treat these things as, so if they're playing Candy Crush or PUBG Mobile, saying they treat it as like a hobby. And so, you know, what's wrong with spending, you know, a few, 10 pounds a month or something on, on your hobby? So I, I don't really get all the hate for free to play. Yes, there are some questionable monetization practices that affect the gameplay. But overall, I just think that free to play is absolutely fine model and works probably, at least on mobile, it's working better for the consumer. I would say. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, like we, when I was at Kabam, we had to literally beg Pocket Gamer to cover our games because all they wanted to cover was these stupid dollar, two dollar Chachki games. And it was like, it, and they were so arrogant because they did have a great following and they did have a big site back then, particularly for mobile gaming. But they were just such the biggest holdouts in terms of covering anything that mattered in this industry from a, from a revenue or where the consumer was, right? They were just holding out, man. They're just, you know, these. Uh, we're focused on the future. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Little wounds, you know. These these scars never heal, you know. Like that, that sounds like a journalist. That sounds like a media site's doing its job if uh, it's ruffling some feathers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that I will not agree with. All right, <laughs> next. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to Amazon and Google. Um, so. This week from gamesindustry.biz, headline was Amazon and Google are in the games business for the wrong reasons. Um, Definitely agree with this. The article argues that um, uh, effectively Amazon and Google have no really good reason to be on the development side of the games business and are pretty doomed to fail. Um, On Google, I'm assuming everybody's aware of Stadia. I don't need to remind everyone of the mistakes there. On Amazon, I think that's the latest news. So Crucible, which was an Amazon game, is now being shifted to a closed beta after being fully launched in May on Steam. Um, and even just in within the month that it launched, it's dropped to about 100 CCU. Uh, why? The game was pretty half-baked. Um, it felt like an absolute like, generic third-person shooter from the mid-2000s. Um, the gameplay differentiation promise just made for a really boring game with no tension. It kind of added this PVE element to the PVP world, um, maybe building off of Gambit, but in the end, it just meant that people were constantly facing these the same monster over and over and over again on a massive map and not really interacting much with other players. Um, Crucible was meant to be a big budget PC title that would you know bring in Amazon as like a key development um uh, key developer in games but just didn't work uh relentless studios which is the development talent behind it um actually had a really you know solid track record and the lumberyard engine that it works on was fine that's crytex cry engine um and the budget was decent like it took four years to develop and reportedly had a development budget of 300 million to work with like Versus like Destiny, which was less than 140, and you got like when Last of Us Part Two is like 100 million, and they bought Twitch for 970 million. Like, this is a third of Twitch. Um, I'm not going to dance in the grave here because I think there was actually like a lot of very talented people working on these games. It really was just a question of like, why are they here in the first place, and who is pulling the strings around the strategy? 
Um, so this article focuses on like why, why Google Stadia and Amazon Crucible's failures show that these companies don't really understand games and are in the, on, uh, looking at the industry in the wrong way. And I think the first point was that neither company actually has a proper reason to be in the business to begin with. They're looking at games as kind of a means to an end where, um, hey, look at all these games using our cloud platform. So why, what if we had made Fortnite ourselves? Wouldn't we be taking advantage of our cloud infrastructure? But to me, this rationale makes no sense. I'm not really sure why, if this is really the reason why they're doing this. Um, but beyond this, it's just the actual DNA of these companies does not make for good games. Um, the, the argument is actually like when you compare this to Sony and Microsoft, which had to go through the same hurdles in order to make their companies into a, like a, a creative company and manage all these games, transition by effectively having an autonomous creative unit rather than a unit that's being constantly synergized with other business um, vectors in order to actually work. So like avoiding games becoming a strategic initiative that's valued is measured in how much it can deliver and value for other business units. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) That's revisionist history if I ever heard it, but we, we can move on from that. Between Microsoft and Sony, that they were left as an independent entity to do their own thing? So like Xbox, Xbox is a business unit, um, basically fought for years to be as autonomous as, as possible to build up their gaming unit. And then Sony managed to do this. And then eventually uh, Kaz Harai, who's the head of PlayStation, eventually became Sony's CEO in the 2010s, giving it more of a... Right, but I know, but that took years. Of course. Like, yep. Years. All right, yep. It wasn't... Okay, I'm just saying that... It wasn't no, no, no like... I, I completely agree. This is what the article argues, right? Like it, that, no. that Sony and Microsoft went through this transition and managed to do it by trying to be as autonomous as possible rather than um, trying to be kind of a leverage unit. Um, and I think like, to be honest, even Facebook needs to be kind of thrown onto this pile around yeah. like yeah. synergies because obviously they picked up Oculus and are now trying to build out all that content and creative studios to drive Oculus, but then are trying to also create this like weird social Facebook world and VR. Um, and that's where they see their leverage. I don't really understand it. <laughs> um anyways we've gone deep enough on other podcasts about like what amazon and google should be doing um stadia tech should be partnered and sold for parts amazon should be focusing on aws twitch and potentially MA to kind of uh acquire additional smart third-party tools and partnering with developers existing successful de- developers for prime but the reality is that neither of these companies should be building consumer facing games or game hardware stick to what you know and stick to what your culture can popular, properly incubate. And I think like they have massive amounts of capital and they should use that to, to build up their scale. So work with existing popular games, um, not trying to get involved in the games as a hit-driven business. That's my notes. Craig? So I, I have a lot of notes about this, but I'll, I'll keep it a bit more succinct uh, about Stadia. I'm sure you've all kind of mentioned it many times many times on this podcast but for me it just stadia just doesn't really make much sense at all and i think google never really talks about stadia you know i i don't really ever see it in their financials uh i certainly didn't see it in their last financials so I, I think that kind of says it all about how important stadia is to google as a company and one other thing i don't understand is their strategy for bringing exclusives to the to Stadia and developing their own projects. I think they, at least seemingly, they opened their own internal studio very late on, very close to the launch. That game's going to take years to make, and by then, is Stadia, is it going to be about? You know? So I'm very confused. The more I ever think about Stadia, when I think about emerging markets or who the actual audience is for it, uh, in my mind, the audience just gets smaller and smaller until, to me, it doesn't become that unique. uh, And it just struggles to compete with really the stalwarts of of Microsoft and Sony. Um, And I'm I'm not talking about uh, other stuff like internet connection speeds and, (laughs) and whatever else here, but I yeah, as far as Google goes, I, I think they'd be better off not focusing on their own platform. Yeah, so 
from my perspective, I do think that this topic is a little bit too big to talk about as a single news segment on this podcast, but the more general topic about the challenges that big high-tech companies have in turning gaming is probably something that might be an interesting discussion for a separate kind of panel discussion at some point. But whether it's the zero to one problem or cultural mismatch or a host of other things that opens up this bigger can of worms, clearly big companies, not just tech companies, do have major problems in the majority of cases in creating big hit games or entering gaming. There are countless examples of this. With respect to Google Stadia, though, I feel like at some point in the future, Stadia probably does make a lot of sense. Maybe not now because of the economics and most likely not by a company like Google as it is today, but someday it'll be there. I personally just remember the first demo I had of Stadia. I was just so impressed. And it was like one of those rare moments when you try something new in tech like a Dropbox or a TiVo. It felt like a huge potential shift in the market that could have a pretty big impact. But yeah, probably we've already talked about this way too much already. Outlook, not so bright, but as always, we're happy to bring on anyone else, whether it's from Amazon or Stadia to talk to us about the, the opposite view. Yeah, but I think like your examples of Dropbox and TiVo are pretty perfect, right? Like, where are they now? Right, like TiVo. Dropbox is doing okay, but yeah. <laughs> like okay, so the Dropbox has one customer, which is Joe. He loves to use paper instead of Google Docs, which I still don't understand. <laughs> um, but like, even look, like look at, at TiVo. The, the same thing will happen to Stadia, right? Like, it might bring streaming more to the mainstream as the way that people want to play games, maybe. But I think it will be a value add to existing platforms who hold the right content for it, just like TiVo was where like TiVo showed the world that like people want on-demand content more than, you know, waiting for eight o'clock to watch their favorite show, but it no longer exists because it never partnered or moved into like any sort of content platform that had the real means of entertainment. Right. So like valve, Sony, Microsoft hold the cards and are all building streaming tech right now, which allows for a stadia like experience to mobile devices, which already captures a majority of what Stadia's um, value is going to be, right? Their tech might not be as strong as Stadia's, but as long as they hold the cards, they can actually take a considerably longer to get the tech up to that space. So I think right now, I think Google just needs to find that partner and sell Stadia for parts now, instead of waiting for tech, the Stadia tech to no longer be a strategic advantage. Um, yeah, I'll just quickly weigh in here. I'm not going to rant about Stadia again. I'm just exhausted at this point. But, um, you know, I think the article is making correct overall kind of points. But I think what it's missing is like kind of, kind of this key strategic reasons for both Amazon and Google to participate in gaming. I don't think the end game was to actually build a gaming business per se. But for Google, and this is oversimplifying, and I agree with also with uh, um, Joseph is that we should probably discuss this in another format. But the problem with Google is when people are playing games and they're on Microsoft and Sony's platform, they're not part of the Google ecosystem. You know, they're not collecting information on what you're doing, right? And so this is what they really need is, is a mechanism by which to get more and more information on their customers, right? That's, that's their business. Their business is advertising, full stop, right? Um, and so that was one of the key parts of it. They're also investing in this cloud technology, right, to deliver this type of content um, with these type of servers, et cetera. So they need a use case that justifies the investment in building this thing out. And the goal ultimately is likely to service other uh, verticals. And so that's why, again, I think they will likely white label this thing and send it out. So it's like a proof of concept type thing for Google to some degree on the tech side. And then for Amazon, and this is a very simplification, so I apologize, is that Twitch and the game strategy was not about necessarily caring about Twitch and games. It's about selling Prime, you know, to this demographic. It's like they're basically trying to appeal to this audience. And in that sense, I think they've been successful. Like, I think they have actually expanded their penetration of Prime to this demographic of 18 to 44-year-old males um, that, uh, that, particularly with Twitch, right? And obviously, the second goal was to push, push Twitch, Lumberyard, and AWS integration um, and creating 
content to basically showcase the use case of, of those technologies. And similar to what Google was, is doing is like they needed you know, proof points about how Twitch integration could work. Now, none of this crap has worked, right? It's clearly like Amazon's in, in dire straits when it comes to <laughs> their strategy. But I mean, the strategy was there, whether it was executed against is a different story, right? Um, again, I don't think they were ever intended to be a top 10 publisher, you know, and I think maybe they had put together presentations that said that, but I don't think that was ever real, the real intention. I think it was, it was other, other strategic uh, plans that were in place. But I will say that, again, this probably requires quite a bit of a longer discussion, but... Uh, a three hundred million dollar budget kind of indicates to me that yeah, <laughs> yeah, like like if I had three hundred million bucks, right? Like if I had three hundred million dollars, let's do yeah. a proof of wait three hundred million dollars for what for the one game for Crucible? Which, yeah, no, who said that? The the internet. I don't know. I can look up the articles that I got that from. No, 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 no. Let me let me look up this article just so I can. It, it was watch thirty million. Realized <laughs> it sounds more. Well, yeah, thirty million is probably more realistic, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's what. There, there, think wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. There is no doubt that they've spent more than three hundred million on their overall gaming strategy. Like, I have no doubt about that. But the individual games, no way. No way. Okay, so this was segment next. It says Crucible took more than four years to develop and reportedly had a development budget of three hundred million to work with. Wow, Call of Duty is like fifty million. <laughs> No, no, hundred million. No, no, you're including marketing. That's it's 150 with marketing, but 50 million dev budget. No, no, the dev budget's a lot higher than that, dude. Yeah, hey, are they talking I, about I future future investment? So yeah, maybe that includes like live years. or something. Like maybe they include some live years, but still, like I don't know, 300. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not commenting anymore because I know too much about this stuff. So I, I, I'm saying that their strategy is flawed, but the initial strategy made sense at the time. Yeah. Okay. So Yang Lu also reports 250 person team, 300 million development budget, four plus years in development. Now four plus years is true. Like again, they've been in business for 10 years. They haven't, this is their first release and then they unreleased it. Right. I mean, like how, how bad could it get, you know? But again, like if, if the main goal of Google is to get data is to get more people on the platform and they should be partnering with valve partnering with Sony to build up their streaming tech for them, right? Versus, and then Amazon, if prime subscriptions are really the goal, then they should be partnering directly with successful, existing successful developers, rather than going two steps farther and saying, we can build the, the successful games ourselves. Look, okay, all right. Here's how the Google thing went. This is, this is how it went. I, I'm actually, what I'm trying to express is the business case for doing it. Like if you're a strategy guy within Google, this is the deck you prepare about why we're doing this, right? And you outline all these different things and it's, it's very Bain and McKenzie type douchebaggery and you just throw it out there and you justify your, your, your existence and the budget and all this stuff and your funding, et cetera, right? I'm not saying it's the right strategy, but here's what happened at Google. Sorry, that's what I, was, I lost my train of thought. So here's what happened at Google. Some engineer came out with this amazing technology and this algorithm, or I don't know what the hell you call it, that, that, that sends data through the packet of, with no packet loss that, that, that can stream anything that you want to stream at the, at the highest resolution possible with you know, this amount of investment in hardware. And this guy is like a wunderkind within Google. And so they fund his idea because he's brilliant, right? So then, then the business guys get on, involved and then they have to justify it with some bullshit use case. So I agree with you. The strategy is flawed, but I could see where they could, you know, pull it out of their, you know, pull the strategy out of their ass, right? And, then, and that's what they did. And so they executed against it. It was just a stupid idea from the get-go, right? Overall. So I agree with you. Partnering with Amazon probably makes, or I'm sorry, partnering with Valve makes more sense. Partnering with Microsoft or what? No, the Microsoft won't work. But anyway, I don't know. Right. I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. So. <laughs> yeah. so, and also the, the dev budget thing I'll correct because um, looking a little bit more in the, the analysis, it doesn't look like the 300 million has been cited. Um, so the 250 person team seems to have been more cited. So if you kind of assume kind of like a standard salary, that's getting you to like 125 for four years of development, which I think is uh, that make, That makes more sense. I mean, it's still an epic failure, but it makes more sense yeah, than 300. Yeah, like 300 million is like, okay. Yeah, okay. 125 is more believable. <laughs> I live with that.
All right. I think we're going to skip this last article. So I think that does it. Thanks very much to Craig. Craig, do you have a message for our audience? I, I just want to say, yeah, thanks for having me on the on the podcast. I, I listen all the time. So it's good to be on here, air some views. <laughs> so thanks very much. No, no problem. Well, thanks for being on. And I think that's it, guys. Catch you all later. Bye. See you. Thanks, bye.